Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. And now, Dr. Miles Davis is going to give us a talk. Before I begin, I have to warn you that there are now at least two people in the room from Philly, which means that we have you surrounded. Uh, so uh, just, 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 just want to let you know. Just let you know. Um, the three. Three, oh, yo, no escape now. Uh, there's three people in the room from Philly. The underlying construct around Christianity and the modern era comes from John 3.16. says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so a lot of people tend to focus on the last part of that that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me just ask you a quick question. How many of you have children? Okay. So you don't have to raise your hand for this. How many of you would sacrifice your child out of love? Some of you just looked at me like, what are you asking? <laughs> but that's exactly what it says when it starts out that verse. It says, "So, for God so loved the world. It's a extreme form of love and this is not the only place in the Bible where that type of love is called for. Matter of fact, uh, there is a common story told in all the Abrahamic faiths, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that talks about Abraham. And, and so you can find it in your Bible, if that happens to be your book of reference, in Genesis 22, where it says that, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about. Again, the ideal of love. And so that... That love as sacrifice, that sacrifice was not only as if it wasn't enough to be emotionally tearing. Think about a father having to sacrifice their son, and, and there's debates whether it was actually referring to Isaac or Ishmael, but that misses the larger point, which is that to ask the sacrifice. And, and that sacrifice would have not just been an emotional one, but considering that Abraham was an older gentleman when he had children, that, in fact, 
he needed the children to till the fields. And so it was both an economic and an emotional sacrifice. And again, when, when I read this, when I was reflecting on this, I was like, wow. You know, even today, and again, I'm not taking anything away from anybody, but, you know, as I listened to the story that was read in the child's moment about love, is presented in a very interesting fashion. Well, recently, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because uh, James Baldwin, one of America's greatest intellectuals and subject of a recent book by Linfield's own Nick Bicola, believed that liberating acts of love are deeply holy acts. Now, he doesn't say romantic acts. He says deeply holy acts. And says, because what James Baldwin says when we're talking about this is to be with God is really to be involved with some enormous, overwhelming desire and joy and power which you cannot control, which controls you. Now, from the construct that James Baldwin offers it, the controlling power of God ought to be understood as a means of liberation because it is an invitation to love one another. But love, as Baldwin understood it, is not easy. It's not sentimental. It's difficult and often painful. I don't need you to raise your hand. I just ask all of you to reflect if there's somebody in your life who you've loved that has caused you pain. There's somebody in your life who you've had to sacrifice for because of your love for them. Last night I had to make a small sacrifice and have glitter on my face because I love my daughter and I went to the father-daughter dance so I had to be spray painted <laughs> with glitter. I did manage to wash it off this morning. But there's always an element of sacrifice and love. So love doesn't often begin and end the way we think it does. Love is a battle. This is from James Baldwin. Love is a battle. Love is war. Love is a growing up. Or in the words of one of my favorite 80 singers, Pat Benatar, love is a battlefield. But it's that struggle, that battlefield, that ultimately leads to freedom. But a struggle it is because James Baldwin believed that to love someone, now listen to this, to, be loved, to love someone is to deny them spiritual and social ease, which, hard as it may sound, is the most important thing that one human being can do for another. Think about that for a second, is that we often base our constructs around love and a romanticized notion of accepting and welcoming. I offer to you that love has a, another dimension. It's interesting as I looked at the poem that started the, the page, it says, love is a knotted and gnarled like an old tree fighting with the wind. That love is something that is not 
just about smoothing things over. In fact, out of love, we offer spiritual and social needs. See, love requires us to force each other to confront the delusions that we rely on to avoid taking responsibility for our lives. He said, oh, you know, Miles, you're, you're, you're making this stuff up. Where's, it, where's this stuff coming from? It's, 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 that's, that's not what it's about. It's, it really is about this, you know, uh, as, as my wife tells me, it's all about butterflies and unicorns and lightness. And I, and I, and I say, there's something else going on here because love takes off the mask that we fear. We cannot live without and we cannot live within because that comes out of a notion of a transformative nature of love because quite frankly, most of us when we talk about love aren't really talking about love, particularly when we talk about the romanticized notion, we really talk about something that begins with another letter L otherwise known as lust. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, or, or, or we're talking about another word that has to do with infatuation, which is where you gloss over everything, you don't say anything. This is not true love. Because, and if you look in terms of the Bible, uh, there are several places that support this notion. Uh, and again, I don't offer these to you as endorsements. I offer to you to build on the point on which I'm talking about. So if you look at Proverbs 13.24, it says... He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If you look at Revelations 3.19, it says, Those I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore be earnest and repent. If you look at Proverbs 3.12, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son on whom he delights. What is being said here is that love does not overlook faults. That's not love. Love requires us to engage. It is out of love that we must confront things. It is interesting that I find myself in a time in this country, and I say this as a person who served in the military, that the ideal of patriotism requires you to go unquestioning. And I would offer to you that a true patriot, a true person that's truly in love with this country, has to question things. Just as a father has to discipline their son, we have to be willing out of a sense of love, be willing to question those around us, including our country. And so, it is not an act of love to avoid correction. In fact, I would offer to you is not only does it border on cowardice, I would say it's the most unloving thing you can do. Because whom the Lord does not love, he leaves to go astray. What are you saying to the people in your life if you're not willing to challenge incorrect or improper behavior? If you're not willing to raise the question? Um, some of you know that I, in my role 
face challenging times and challenging situations, and that there are those who don't always agree with me or what I'm doing. But here's something else that I know. It's okay. Because most of the people, I'm not saying all, but most of the people who are doing this are doing it out of a deep-seated love for the institution that I'm tinkering around with. <laughs> That's love. You know, when my wife comes to me and says, well, you should have did this differently, or you could have done that differently. That's not from a place that I should be mad. That's a, from a place of concern, because if she didn't care for me, she wouldn't bother to mention those things. When we react quickly to our child with his wet, gooey fingers, about to stick it into an electric socket, yeah. We're not doing it because we're being horrible parents. We're trying to protect them. We're doing it out of a sense of love. So the ideal that love is something that is it's okay, it's all good, I would say it's incompatible with the notion of what we have to do. And I want to be clear, it is important to understand love within the context of devotion. I've always hated that expression. Um, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a little older than a, a lot of you in here. and I know I don't look it, but I really am. Um, I'm a little older than a lot of you in here, and I remember that phrase that came up, love it or leave it, as if that was a real choice. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if you love it, then you fight to change it. That's what love is. Love undergirds us. Love gives us strength. It gives us the ability to make sacrifice. And sometimes, because I've also learned another expression since being here about Oregon nice, I just want to let you know that love sometimes requires confrontation. And it doesn't have to be a mean, nasty confrontation. Because we can confront in a spirit of love. We don't have to, you know, hurl epithets at one another. We don't have to be nasty and mean to one another. Not when we love them. See, I'm, t I'm talking about a challenging kind of love. And no, not the kind of love, I'm not asking you to sacrifice your firstborn. But true love, not the mooey, gooey stuff of love sonics, romantic songs, or caterpillars and unicorns. But <laughs> butterflies, okay. <laughs> but love, but love that is eternal. Love that is transformative is a battlefield. And to prepare for that battle, one must be armed with two things. One 
is love of God. Now, you can call it God, you can call it Yahweh, you can call it Allah, you can call it Adonai, you can call it I who am I, you can call it the Great Mother. But it is often out of a belief of something that is greater than us that gives us the strength to confront the injustices of the world, the injustice in our relationship, because our faith is placed in something bigger than what we're talking about. People understand, you understand what I'm talking about there? The other thing that is important and that I see missing most, even more so than the love of God, is the love of self. Which is kind of ironic because a lot of us have a construct is that we are made in God's image. So how can we claim to love God who we do not see but not love ourselves and each other who we see every day? I have a hard time understanding that. But when you love yourself, it stops you from doing things just to get along and get by. Because what we're dealing with when we don't love ourselves is the desire to be loved by others that can never fulfill that gap that's missing. And because we desire to be loved by others, at least liked a little bit, we are often unwilling to confront the things that we know that these people are doing. Sometimes these are people in the house with us. Sometimes it's people in our neighborhoods. And sometimes it's people who we elect or people who we claim to follow or have positions. But if you love yourself, it doesn't become an issue of, well, what are they going to think of me if I say this? So you have to have both together. Because if you have a love of God, then you have faith and you understand that you're just trying to act out of a path that makes sense. And then your love of self requires that you don't put up with things that tear you down, that demean you, that make you less than. Because that's inconsistent with your love of self. You don't stay places where you're not loved. And so I just want to let you know um, that both I and God love you. I love you within the context of your and our shared humanity. We may not always agree. We may have different ways of approaching things. We may believe differently. We have beliefs that may reside at different ends of political spectrums. We have thoughts about how things should be done, but that doesn't require that we not love one another. And it's interesting because often people quote, and I heard this last month because it was Valentine's Day, it says, and the greatest form of these is love, is that love is the most important thing. But I also think that we need to look at what the context of that love is. In the context of that love that I've seen, true love always requires sacrifice and commitment and strength. So with that, I'm going to wish you to be well and be blessed. So if anyone would like to ask a question, now's the time. 
So could you share what you have found, <clears throat> either personally or through the experience with Linfield, what are the ways that help people most effectively take confrontation and give confrontation, and how are we teaching and learning that? Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a tough one because, quite frankly, um, so you know that I, I try to avoid controversy, but I seem to take it with me wherever I go, so, so, so work with me here. Um, I, I, I think that our society has, and I'm using this word clinically as opposed to the popular conception, has retarded people's abilities to deal with conflict. And here's what I mean by that, is that when we started the movement to not only protect but exalt and to some extent worship self-esteem, we thought that the most important thing to do was to protect people from every odious thing that came their way. And so thereby our children have no resources to deal with conflict because as parents or as grandparents or as great-grandparents, we protected them from anything that looks like conflict. And so thereby they have no reserves to deal with these issues. Uh, and and I'll, I'll pause there for a second. And so how that manifests itself, since you asked about Linfield, how that manifests itself in an educational construct is I don't think that we've done a good job at it. And here's how I know that we haven't done a good job at an education, because we think the response to ideals that we don't agree with is to protest and shut down speakers. That's anti-intellectual. You, you don't shut down ideals. You challenge ideals with better ideas. And so what we're trying to do now to the next level, what we're trying to do at Linfield is to create an institution that people can hear different ideals and argue against them. Realize the ill logic in ideals. Realize when somebody is engaging in certain types of attacks that have nothing to do with the quality of the ideal. Ad hominem attacks where you're attacking a person as opposed to challenging the idea where you're, you know, these things are not taught anymore in schools. You know, it's commonly referred to when I was taking classes called rhetoric. Uh, the correct use of the word, how to make effective arguments. Quite frankly, uh, in an educational moment, if I may, in an educational commercial, the word liberal arts isn't about political conversation. The word liberal arts, liberalis aris, are the skills of free people. And so within the context of Roman and Greek society, skilled people knew how to make effective arguments because soldiers weren't even allowed to take those courses because weapons only win battles, but ideals win wars. And so what we're trying to do at Linfield and what we're trying to do is uh, introduce those ideals. Uh, unfortunately, there's a pendulum that swings back and forth in any society. And right now, our pendulum is swinging on the side of that we don't want to say anything that may trigger any type of negative emotion. It's not healthy. It's not healthy. And I know that it's not healthy because I see the increased rates of suicide among students at colleges. I, I, I see people who, who fail something once and they want to quit and give up and give up on life at 18 years old. Uh, we, 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 
we have to do a better job of allowing our children to engage in conflict. Because it's no different than what happens when you read books. The more books you read, the more capacity you have to read. You understand this, right? Because it takes a while, it takes discipline. And it's, it's amazing because I see some of you uh, in the gym. I go over to Planet Fitness in the morning, and I, and I look at the amount of, amount of time that people spend there developing those, that fine specimen of man that he is, you know, getting that body together. Yeah. 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 You know, but, <laughs> but, but, but the reality of it is, is that we spend this time that we have to work mind, body, and spirit together. And so it, it, you have to develop the capacity. You can't go into the gym and start bench pressing 245 pounds unless you're Eric. You can do that. <laughs> but other than that, you have to build up to it. So we have to be willing to introduce our children and let them work some things out. I know this is hard for us, particularly if you happen to have two. So now I'm, I'm revealing some of my life. When you have two kids that are in the back of a car don't touch me, stop touching me, stop touching me, don't touch me. And you want to solve everything for them, but sometimes you got to allow them to work that stuff out so that they have the capacity to address issues. That, and so what we're trying to do at Linfield, directly what you're saying, is make sure that our students can engage in critical thinking and analysis. And let's be clear, two people can look at the same thing and come up with different conclusions. But you have to be willing to make your case without attacking the person. Am I making any sense to you? That, that, that is what higher education is about. It is not just about getting a job. It is about learning how to think and function and be a free citizen in our society. And I'll stop because I, I can go off on that for another 20 minutes and then Ronnie be like, I told you, keep it short. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you for that question, Dan. I'm getting hung up on the word confrontation. Yes. Because I think of confrontation as you know, going after someone. You just said don't attack somebody. So I'm wondering how, if you could define more how you're using that word. So, so this is the advantage, again, of a great liberal arts uh, education. Anybody here study Latin? So the root of confrontation is to confront. The root of confront is con, to go against. It is not attack. It is to actually be in opposition to. And so the word confront. You guys enjoying this lesson? I love teaching. This is good stuff. Okay. So, so, so the, I'm in my element now. I love this stuff. You know, so confrontation is merely the ideal of two things operating in opposition to one another. Quite frankly, that's the nature of the universe. For every, I mean, that's science. So if you don't want to believe in it from a, a theological perspective or a metaphysical, I can take it to physics. What it says, for every action. And so confrontation in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. You know, it's how do we handle it? How do, how do we handle things that are against us? Because we're going to run against this every day. Every day. I mean, heck, some of you are having are engaging intellectually with confrontation with some of the things I said. And that's okay. You know, but how do we talk about it? How do we react? Now, now the, the challenge is the escalation of the confrontation. And then what is necessary? So, and I'll, and I'll just share this and I'll move away from this 
let, let somebody else ask a question. Because I think that when we're confronted, again, same root word against, when we're confronted with situations that are destructive or displeasing or that we know that is wrong, is how do we respond? And part of how we respond is based within the construct of how we feel about ourselves and what faith we have. And here's what I mean by that. Because if you believe that what you're working against is truly inherently wrong, the highest level of faith is to work with your hands. And what I mean by that is, what are you going to do to change that situation, actively engage in changing that situation? Because, another sentence for you to finish, all it takes for evil to succeed is, is good people to do nothing. And so, so you have to take action because, quite frankly, my concern right now is that people of ill will are using their time and energy much more constructive than people of good will. But that's another sermon. That's another sermon. And so, so, we, so, so you have to be willing to work with your hands. The second thing is, okay, I can't work with my hands. Then to speak out against it. Again, confrontation. You're confronting the system. Are you willing to speak out? And some of us don't speak out because we have positions or status or other things that we don't want to upset or alienate people. So we don't, you know, so we don't want to speak out. And so I'll give you the lowest level. At the lowest level, because when you're truly in love, you also hate what is wrong. And so at the lowest level of faith is to hate it in your heart. It's to hate it in your heart. You see it and, and you just... All I can tell you is there are a number of things that are happening in our world right now and, and I can't or I don't believe I have the ability, and maybe I do, to change some of them. So at the very least I do right now is turn off the TV sometimes. I just can't take it. I just hate it so much that it just drives me crazy. So I hate it in my heart. If you see something and, and, and you're not sure the outcome. Okay. Did, that, did that answer your question? Okay. I saw, I saw another hand. I don't, I don't know how to express this really, but what you're talking about is very complex. It is. And I like this idea of the turning, turning it off, turning off. TV, but I'm I'm so overwhelmed yeah. by the frivolousness is the wrong word, but how this rapid all I hear in the airwaves is just not complex. Yeah. And so, how do you deal with that? Well, so 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 again, I I, I asked you to be to to keep in and reflect upon yourself um, because the reality is uh, there's an interesting thing that I'm very much into called choice theory. Uh, in choice theory, one of, the, one of the, the top principles of choice theory, there are 10, you can Google it later, but one of the, the, the top principles in choice theory says that the only thing that you can truly provide information, the only thing you can truly provide to another person is information, and the second principle of choice theory is the only person's behavior that you can truly control is your own. And so what does that do for me? Again, it may not do anything for you. What it does for me is, uh, is stops me from being overly frustrated about what other people do. And so I have to focus. Remember I said that, that thing that's in the back of my head, that people of ill will are using their time and energy more effective than people of goodwill. Because what I see is a lot of people of goodwill being reactionary as opposed to proactive. They're constantly reacting to something that's something that was said or something that was put out, and then they go run around and decide to react to that. But then I said, well, what's your agenda? You know, what are you trying to move towards? And so I've started spending 
my time working towards something. I really don't spend a lot of my time these days fighting against something. And so how you structure that for you uh, will we'll, uh, have to do with it. And the reality of it, so let, let me deal with what you're talking about is very real in terms of the information you have coming at you. The average person today in a single day is bombarded with more information than somebody who was born 100 years ago would have seen in their entire lifetime. You can look this up. Matter of fact, it was interesting. I was watching stuff about the coronavirus, and now they're talking about, as opposed to being a pandemic, they're talking about an infodemic in terms of competing for space about correct and incorrect information. You know, my advice on that, you know, fortunately, I live with a nurse, so I have a source of all information. Uh, but, 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 the, but the other thing is, you know what? Cut off the news. Go, go, go to the WHO website, go to the CDC website, see what they say, and just ignore the rest of the nonsense. You know, so, so what I mean by that is that find the selective good information, not just information that supports your particular point of view. <laughs> you hear me? But find, but find sources of accurate information and try your best to tune out the rest. Because I know, I, I know what you're talking about. It's just so much coming at you. And you just have to say, okay, enough. I, I, I need good information, and then I'll act upon that. But direct your energy. Direct your energy in the movement that you wanted to move in. And, and let me be clear, that's not a big thing. That's not about creating a social movement. Even though if you want to do that, I do remind you that social movements have started in rooms smaller than this. But sometimes the social movements that we create exist inside of our households. Sometimes the social movement has to do with our life partners. You know, what do we do in our neighborhood? Heck, you know, I smile at old women and call that revolution, you know. Think about that. Think about that for a second. Because the reality is that in a society that overly, and again, wading into the area of controversy, in a society that overly values youth, and yes, I use that word intentionally, overly values youth, the ideal that you can be older and more mature and still be smiled at and flirted with. That's an act of revolution. Yeah. It keeps me from it going too far. It keeps me going too far. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Thank you. Last question. I think, I think we need to wrap up this part. Is this the last one? Okay, so, so, so last, don't wait to get into drive I wish I would have asked another question. Give me that last burning question. Come on, I got one more good lecture in me. Come on, go ahead. I really appreciate what you're saying, and I agree. And my question to you um, is, with your students at Linfield and everything you've been talking about, because I know exactly what you're talking about. I have teenage kids, yeah. and their resilience is not as strong as, and I see things that I've done that I wish I would have let them struggle more with. So in regard to what you've just said, how do you promote that thinking on campus? So, 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 so that, that is an excellent question. So, so, and I'll give you a real life example that just happened two weeks ago. Uh, a gentleman, fine gentleman, um, who, yeah, I guess I can say this, 
who happen to be, ah, I won't identify the sport, who happen to be wonderful inside of a particular sport, because I don't want to give any indication any way or another who this person is. Wonderful within a particular sport on campus and couldn't play that sport because the NCAA sets grade point average and able to, to play in sports. And so I invited him in to my office. One of the reasons I love small school and small school education is because you get to know, I mean, you, you can't, you, you know, you can't do this at large institutions. Um, but, you know, I can invite them in to come into my office and have a conversation with them. One of the things that I don't do, I don't point blame. So like the great philosopher Socrates, I spent a lot of time asking questions. Tell me how you got here. So you don't get to tell me what somebody else did. The question is always tell me how you got here. Tell me what your role is in this. Tell me why and why didn't you do the things. Like for instance, we have tutoring service on campus. We have people who are dying to help you and everything. And you didn't go see any of these people. Why? And so in the asking of the question, and there were reasons. I mean, coming out of high school, excellent performer, you know, belonged at Linfield based upon what was there, not just because they could play a sport, but they were academically based upon that criteria. But Linfield is no walk in the park. Linfield is a hard education. We're going to challenge you. And what he wasn't prepared for was the challenge, because high school was easy for him. And he didn't think he needed that. But he had to come to that realization because, quite frankly, okay, how many of you have spent time with teenagers between 15 and 18? They know everything. You can't tell them anything. So what you have to try to do is drive them towards an understanding of their role. You have to ask them a lot of questions. Because if you tell them, all they're going to do is push back at you. And so what I do is ask the question about how did you get here and how can you make it better. And he did make it better. He went uh, day one. You got a tutor. Manage your time. You can't stay up all night and do the X, Y, and Z and then expect to get up. The books don't study themselves. The papers can't write themselves. You have to realize your role in it and take responsibility in your life. But I also need to let you know that a lot of people are frightened to take responsibility for their own lives. It's a lot easier to blame someone or something else for what's happening to you. But part of what we're doing at Linfield is encouraging the maturation process. And that maturation process means that you have to make a change and make a difference in your life. If you want to talk to me more about that, I'll make myself available. But I'm very conscious that, you know, Ronnie's my boss and, you know, and everything. So, so I, I, I just want to thank you. I, you, you, could, you could have been anywhere this Sunday morning. I want to thank you for being here this Sunday morning. If I said anything that was positive, anything that touched you in the right way, uh, I do not take any credit for it. It is uh, from the source that inspires me. If I said anything that's wrong, anything that I misquoted or misrepresented, I take full responsibility and blame it on my humanness and not any ill intent. Be well. Be blessed.